Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. It is Tuesday, and tonight's show is sponsored by Public.com and the Public app. Public is doing something really interesting. They launched options trading, and this is an industry first. They are sharing 50% of their options revenue directly with you. So if you're trading options somewhere, you might as well consider moving that activity over to public. They will earn fees on that, and they will split that 50-50 with you. So you're going to know exactly how much public makes from your options trades because you're getting half of it. It's a more transparent approach to options with no fees, and you get something back on every single trade. Who doesn't love that? Go to public.com and activate options trading by March 31st in order to lock in your lifetime rebate. This has been paid for by the Public Investing app. Must activate options account by March 31st for revenue share. Options are not suitable for all investors and carry significant risk. Full disclosures in podcast description, U.S. members only. Okay, on tonight's show, my friends Nick Colas and Jessica Rabe of DataTrek Research stopped by and they tell us all about some of the stuff they've learned so far this year. One of the big lessons is large caps can handle rising rates. They're doing it yet again. Rates are higher this year. And so far, the S&P 500 has not backed off. And I have a feeling earnings have a lot to do with that. We will absolutely get into it. We also look at the near record high correlations we're seeing between long-dated treasury bonds and the S&P 500. Also, the NASDAQ 100. And this is pretty rare that long-dated treasury bonds and stocks are this correlated. And we're going to find out a little bit about what's going on and what we can expect going forward as that trend persists. We also talk about some career stuff with Jessica for some of the younger listeners. I think you guys are absolutely going to love it. And then, as if that weren't enough, it's an all-new edition of What Are Your Thoughts? It's Michael Batnick, live from vacation, and me, and boy, did we have a big show tonight. NVIDIA reporting earnings. We preview that. We took a look at how desperately this market is in need of a pullback, at least in, in our opinion. Uh, some of the uh, S&P 500 year-end target lifts that we're seeing this week and so much more. So it's Nick, Jessica, Michael, myself. It's an action-packed show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll send you there right now. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm here with uh, my friends Nick Colas and Jessica Rabe. They are the co-founders of DataTrek one of the most respected research firms on Wall Street. And today we're trying something new. We're calling it, What Did We Learn? We're gonna be checking in with Jessica and Nick on a regular basis and see what we can learn about what's happening with stocks, bonds, the economy, the markets, all of the things that we normally talk about on this channel. Uh, Nick and Jessica, thanks so much for coming by. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. All right. I know you guys weren't terribly busy today because it is uh, President's Day. So I'm always surprised when I wake up in the morning and it's President's Day and the market's closed. Uh, Columbus Day, it's open. Did you know that? Yes. <laughs> that, 
So that one I had to remind myself too. Oh, wait, it's not actually a holiday. So I get, I get confused. Uh, we're about the, I, I don't know, is it, is it safe to say we're still midpoint of Q1, maybe a few days past? Uh, I think, I feel like uh, earnings season has gone pretty well. Obviously, all of the asset classes that we follow have been doing pretty well and a lot of follow through from the rally that ended last year. Um, but I wanted to start off with some of the things that we've learned uh, since we've gotten halfway through Q1. And the first thing is interest rates have risen uh, since the end of 2023. What do you guys see going on here, uh, specifically in shorter term in shorter term yields? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about what we've learned so far in 2024, it's that uh, large cap stocks can work even if yields go up. That's sort of been the, the the central talking point of the first half of the first quarter. And like you said, yields have gone up. You know, twos are up 39 basis points, tens are up 42 basis points. Kind of a big move, you know, resetting a little bit from last year. Um, Fed funds futures are expecting three or four cuts this year instead of six or five, which they were expecting at the beginning of the year. So you've had the entire yield curve kind of reset modestly higher in terms of yield, and yet stocks have worked out okay. Corporate bond markets still pretty strong. You know, uh, the investment grade spreads are less than 100 basis points, which is only happens when the economy is good. When we've never had a recession 12 months after uh, IG spreads are this low, so another positive point. All kind of says, you know, the economy's okay, yields reset a little bit higher, large cap stocks have worked their way up, small caps are kind of flat. And it says we got a lot of confidence in the US economy. Things are going pretty well, and it's going better than the rest of the world, frankly. And the dollar is stronger versus every major currency developed and emerging, except for the Indian rupee. Um, US large caps are outperforming EFA and EM. It's a very kind of narrow move higher for global equities. It's U.S. large caps and pretty much everything else is a little bit, you know, worse off. So it's basically the bottom line is, hey, we've had a good first half of the first quarter. The economy is OK. Corporate earnings are OK. And we're off to the races. Do you guys feel like the story at the end of 2023, the narrative that uh, everyone involved in the market told themselves was 2024 is going to be the year that we get all these rate cuts. Those cuts have come off the table. Stocks have levitated regardless, and we have a new story, which is stocks don't mind higher rates. Yeah, it's that's a very good summary of what we've had so far in the year. Okay. I'd say the wrinkle is going to be the 10-year going over 425, and kind of if it flirts back with 450, then we're going to test that thesis pretty hard. Because if you go back the last two to three years, S&P 10-year yields, they're kind of lockstep. You know, one one breaks through 425, the other one goes down. You know, rates stabilize, stocks go up. So I kind of think we're going to have another version of that again this year. Uh, you guys were saying the combination of higher rates, stronger dollar, U.S. Out, uh, equity outperformance is consistent with a mid-cycle playbook or your mid-cycle playbook. Talk a little bit about uh, this mid-cycle situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, how long can these periods persist? What should be what should we be watching for um, so that the mid-cycle doesn't turn into late cycle before yes. uh, before we've made any kind of a mental adjustments? Yes. So. Yeah, mid-cycle basically is everything that's not early cycle, which is recession and you know the economy falling out of bed and stocks going down. And late cycle, which is occasionally that period where you know things are going to get ugly, but they haven't quite gotten ugly yet. Everything else is mid-cycle, and those periods can go on for years and years. So 1995 to 99, 03 to 07, 
2012, call it to 2019, they go on for years. And during those periods, a couple of things usually happen. The first is large caps outperform small caps. And okay, large caps, <laughs> U.S. large caps outperform rest of the world. Check. Right. Rates, rates kind of bang around wherever they're going to be. And occasionally you're going to worry about a recession and check. We're getting some of that. The dollar tends to be strong. So we're getting that. We're like literally checking every single box in the mid-cycle playbook. And that's the period that we're in. And like you know, we alluded to, it can go on for a long, long time. So despite all the stuff that's different about uh, the post-pandemic recovery, you're saying um, the, the big things tend to align pretty well with what we normally say in a in a mid cycle. Yeah, and if you look at sectors that work, you know, mid cycle sectors that work: tech, healthcare, and financials. Exactly okay. the three upcoming sectors this year. So we're literally hitting every part of the playbook extremely hard. Uh, Jessica, how much do you worry about things being too good or too easy for investors? Because this is a big thing that's on my mind right now. Uh, like what, like when do we cross over from saying, Hey, the market's pretty good to don't worry. The market's bulletproof. And I don't think we're there sentiment wise. Um, but like, that's, that seems to me to be the thing that maybe we should be watching for. Yeah. One of the biggest things we hear that people are worried about is our tech stocks overvalued, but a couple of the simple metrics that we look at, uh, one is just simply the, the two year rolling returns in the NASDAQ composite. So the average two-year NASDAQ uh, return back over the last 50 years is 26%. Over the last two years, it's only up 14%. So as much as the NASDAQ rallied last year and is continuing that rally this year, it's really just trying to play some catch-up and getting back to the longer run mean. And another another thing we look at is uh, just the the year-over-year return in the NASDAQ. So we look so what we look at for here is a double is a bubble. So whenever the Nasdaq doubles in a year, it's usually a reliable p- predictor of a bubble. So go back to say uh, February two thousand, the Nasdaq doubled in a year, right around the the peak for the dot com bubble, or even in the last speculative tech bubble, the Nasdaq was up eighty percent year over year in uh, March twenty twenty one. So between eighty percent to a double, we get concerned. Right now, the NASDAQ's only up 34% year over year. An impressive gain, but nowhere near certifiable bubble status. So you wouldn't measure you wouldn't measure that off any specific low. You would just like say a year sounds like the right cadence where if things double, it's probably way too much. We do, but even if you want to measure it, uh, the NASDAQ versus its low at the end of 2022, it's still only up 54%, nowhere right. near the, the right. 80 to 100%. I'm not saying we can't get there. That could certainly happen. We're just not there yet. So if it doubles, it's a bubble. You know how I know that's probably true? Doubles it, a bubble. Because it, it rhymes. And I only, <laughs> I only follow in, investment maxims that rhyme, like sell in May. Like these are, these are the ones that I believe most in. Uh, all right, I want to I want to ask you about stock bond correlations, and this is another thing that's really on the minds of everyone working in wealth management. And there's two consequences here of whether or not this is going to continue from from where I sit. I talk to RIAs, financial advisors, and you know many of them have built these portfolios for clients on the premise that when your equities get into trouble, your bonds are going to bail you out. You'll have 
excess liquidity in, in bonds, no problem. You'll be able to sell, buy more stocks, and we'll do that systematically, or we'll do that on a calendar basis, or whatever the case may be. Uh, that didn't work very well in 2022. The end result of that in 23 and continuing into 24, we have this explosion in interest in alternatives. So it seems as though financial advisors don't want to have to answer the same questions they had to answer in 2022 about stock bond correlation and stock bond portfolios being quote unquote effective. Um, so that's one of the major that's one of the major uh, consequences of, of that period, I think. And then the second one is really, you know, as people create portfolios go prospectively or show them to clients, um, they're probably going to have to get a little bit more in depth on when stocks and bonds correlate and why and how long those periods can go on for. So I, I'm really glad I have the chance to, to talk to you about some of the stuff that you found looking at U.S. stocks and long-dated treasury price correlations. What's, uh, let's, let's start with your chart. What are we looking at here? Sure, yeah. So I'll just give a, a few brief background points. So this is definitely a, a grimy topic, but very important. Certainly one of the, the key things we've learned this year is that the price correlation between stocks and long-dated treasuries can be the highest it's been at any point in the last 20 years. So as for what correlations are and why they matter, correlation is just a statistical measure of how closely uh, two variables track one another. So a correlation of negative one means they track, they move in opposite directions, a correlation of plus one, they move together, and a zero correlation, uh, they move independently of one another. Now, stocks and bonds are usually inversely correlated, so they move in opposite directions. And that's great for owners of stocks and bonds because it gives you, or it's supposed to, it traditionally has given you diversification in your portfolio. However, uh, if you bring up the, the chart you just mentioned, you can see that if you look at the price correlation between the S&P 500 and TLT, the plus 20-year bond ETF, the average 100-day correlation over the last 20 years is negative 0.3. Right now, as you can see on uh, to the right uh, of the chart, where the, the correlation between TLT and S&P 500 over the last 100 days is 0.3. That's over two standard deviations so above the average. So extremely correlated, meaning on a day-to-day -day basis, for the most part, they're starting to move in lockstep with each other. Exactly. So it makes investing harder, right? Because on any given day, either it looks like everything's working or everything is not working and everything looks bad. The values, so the values of the, people's the, accounts are swinging more so than they would if one of them were offsetting the other. Yeah, as much as, as stocks usually go up when they go down, bonds have tended to go up. That's not the case right now. Right. And, that, and so as much as stock market volatility is low, if you own stocks and bonds in a portfolio, you're probably seeing higher than normal bond volatility. I mean, uh, bond stock volatility in your portfolio. Right. Uh, you point out that it's no different if you were to look at the triple Qs, which is the NASDAQ yeah. instead of the S&P. I mean, obviously this makes sense because the overlap, the largest stocks in the S&P are also the largest stocks in the NASDAQ. Yeah, actually, uh, one in, so for the NASDAQ, the 100-day the correlation between, the, if you look at the NASDAQ 100, the Qs versus TLT, 
right now it's point it's positive 0.2 versus the average over the last 20 years is usually negative 0.25 so it's still high however it's not as high as the S&P 500 they're a little bit less sensitive to rates you wouldn't think so because you think tech stocks high valuations but a little bit less sensitive actually to long rates in the S&P because the S&P is uh, has higher weightings to cyclicals like financials and industrials I guess I guess that story makes sense also because the companies that comprise the Nasdaq are the least likely to require to you know any kind of borrowing or or credit uh extension. Uh I think that's a big All right, so you guys have a theory as to what's causing this or uh why you think we're seeing it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's certainly that the stock and bond market are trying to figure out where interest rates are going to be. It's not the it's not the 20, 2010s anymore where the Fed's in control of the entire yield curve. The market's setting long-term rates, but not really where it's sure where they should go. Equity markets know that and know how important that is to discounting stock prices. And so correlations are high. As for when this will resolve itself, we, we still think we're about a year out because we really need more clarity on when Inflation is going to get back down to the 2% target. Recent strong economic data shows it's unclear if, if the Fed's going to be able to achieve that anytime soon. Do you think this results in portfolio managers who are multi-asset uh, just utilizing more cash than historically they would have and you know, staying away from duration, staying away from any, you know, any treasury bond that's more than you know, a 10-year treasury or – is there maybe a trade to be made betting that this level of correlation is probably unlikely to persist for you know that much longer? Like, what, where, which side of that yeah. would you would you wait would you fall fall down on? Yeah, excellent, uh, excellent points and questions. So, I, I would say that we're this we're definitely in an anomalous period right now. Where this is not this is not the paradigm. So we're, we'll certainly look back and say this was a very unusual period of super high correlations relative to history. I think we're not saying to totally, you know, ditch long rates altogether, like like long, long dated treasuries altogether, like TLT. If you go back to as much as they didn't work in 2022, if you go back to 2020, in the event of a, of a true crisis, it did work out as a really good hedge to keep people in the game, including Nick and myself. So you know, should there be an economic shock later this year or geopolitical shock? At the end of the day, the dollar and long dated treasuries are still safe haven assets. Uh, I want to I want to talk about small caps. There's some weird stuff going on in in the Russell 2000 year to date. It sort of feels like the meme stock craze with AMC and GameStop whipping the the Russell 2000 around, which happened in early 2021. In hindsight, that should have been a sign that, you know, uh, that that would be unsustainable. Uh, and of course, it turned out to have been. This time, we have different stocks, but a similar phenomenon. Uh, you guys took a look at Supermicro Computer and its effect on uh, – here. Well, so here's price. That looks like a blow-off top to me uh, without making any price predictions. What Just on, on the surface, this is a stock that goes from – $300 in the middle of January to $1,000 two weeks later and round trips back down part of the way to about 800. So I, 
I don't know if the next 200 points are higher or lower, but <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of parabolic Empire State Building uh, formation historically is not the kind of thing that I'd ever want to be caught long in. Uh, but what what do you think is happening here? Yeah, you know, it's the right stock to focus on because, you know, the Russell's up 30 bips on the year, 30 basis points. And SMCI is the entire 30 basis points and then some. It's up oh, 180 yeah. it's up 182% year to date. It's got an average weighting this year of 1%. It's almost two points of Russell performance on its own. Okay. So that's yeah, you're right. It's a little microcosm of what we had back in in the spec bubble. And it's funny, small caps, actually, sort of that insight leads to like a bigger insight about the small cap space, because it only works in two parts of the cycle. It works early in the cycle when a bunch of really beaten down, but kind of high weighting names all of a sudden rip. They go from, say, 10 to 100 in a year. There's cyclicals, there are banks, there's things that get really beaten down at the bottom, and they rip. That's why small caps are so good early in the cycle, because they're like a hyper supercharged play on that recovery. The other time small caps work is when you get a spec bubble. And it's too early to say we're getting one now, but we only have a couple of names doing this. SMCI is the most egregious example. If we have 10 SMCIs because speculative phase continues this year, then you're going to see kind of a repeat of 21. You're going to see that same kind of move. That's the only two reasons to own small caps. One, at the bottom of a cycle. And two, if you want to play a spec trade, you know, but don't want to buy an individual name, small caps will work then. And SMCI, year to date, definitely like fits the, what have we learned this year? We've learned yeah. that there can be spec trades again, and we're having one. So what's interesting about SMCI is that the day it hit 1,000, that actually happened in concert with a research report from Bank of America I think initiating coverage on the stock or upgrading it. And I think their target was a thousand. So they got instant gratification on the call. Um, but there's like a real fundamental story there. It's not Reddit and like a conspiracy of, you know, younger traders who like have decided they want to fight the shorts or anything like that. There is a fundamental story behind SMCI. I'm not saying it would justify what the stock has done. But maybe that's an important distinction from 2021 uh, to now. It's, it's it not is, quite a meme stock. I'll tell you, I went out to dinner on Friday night with my wife in midtown Manhattan at a very old school French restaurant. And I know the staff there. They know what I do. And uh, the maitre d' comes over into dinner and says, what do you think about SMCI? Yeah. So it's it, it's crossed over. It's a, it's a stock that people are talking about that are far away from Wall Street. Okay. Yep. How, so it's I think the market cap was $50 billion at the peak. So obviously at that level, it doesn't belong in the Russell 2000. The Ru Russell does, I think they do an annual reconstitution mm -hmm. and I think it's in May. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. So this could persist for a while before they make a decision on the stock. Yes. And that is the irony of the small cap space generally, because anything that's truly excellent in the Russell 2 gets bumped to the Russell 1. And yeah. you got to replay, replay the whole game over again. It's not like the S P five hundred where you kind of hold it forever, right? You know, the, they the best, they, the they best stuff cycles out. They graduate, which is maybe a flaw within the small cap and mid cap indices relative to the S and P. Like the S and P can keep a stock like Apple forever. Uh, <laughs> the S and P can be fifteen percent two stocks, and no one complains. You know, it's funny. My my <laughs> my brother when he when he finished college, he went out to Hollywood and he wanted to be an agent, but he wasn't coming out of Yale, so he wasn't at William Morris. He was at one of like the second or third tier agencies. And the guy who he got the job with told him, 
the worst thing that can happen is we succeed for our clients. So, so my brother said, well, wait, I don't understand. I'm running all over town trying to get, trying to get my clients auditions and meetings with directors and uh, commercial spots. He said, yeah, I know. And if you succeed, it's the worst thing that could happen because then they fire you and they go to CAA or William Morris. So like when you're representing second tier talent, trying to get them bumped up to the A list or even the B list, the worst thing that could happen for your own career is you actually succeed in, in helping them with their career. Now, of course it's, you know, kind of a joke. Uh, I don't think they really meant it, but you have a small cap like SMCI undergoes this massive secular uh, tailwind and everyone starts to recognize it. The problem is for the Russell 2000, it's like, oh, that was one of our superstar stocks. Now it's gone. We got to replace it with a company that makes pet food or, or whatever else goes into the index. So Yeah, it's the only benefit. It's an evergreen process and there's always enough going on that something is going to work at the right part of the cycle. That's right. Um, I wanted to ask, when you said uh, the Russell ends up looking like a VC portfolio and only a few huge winners deliver the marginal return. Is that in all market environments? Is that, is that a constant or is that uh, during bull markets? That is the one constant in capital markets. And I think the one constant we can rely on and, you know, the Best and Binder paper that we've talked about in the past where they look at 64,000 stocks from 1990 to 2020 and look at what makes for their total return in aggregate market value, U.S. and global. And it's basically 2% of stocks drive 100% of the value creation over a long time frame. 55% of stocks don't even make T-bill returns. On any given three-year period, only 30% of stocks outperform. Any way you cut it, it's really a handful of names that end up making long-term returns possible. And it's much more apparent in the U.S. The U.S. has far better long-term returns than the rest of the world because we have just a better ecosystem from everything from finding the right people, finding the right talent, getting to the right schools, giving them capital, getting to start companies, and then having the right infrastructure around them to provide long-term growth. It's why Facebook exists. It's why Apple exists. It's why everything we talk about is megatech exists and continues to grow. But yeah, it, the whole world's a VC portfolio. It's a lot of stuff that doesn't really work great and a handful of names that are just awesome. So I just buy the two percent that that drive all the returns. I don't, it's very easy. I don't know. I don't waste my time is. with the other. <laughs> uh, so you guys have a YouTube channel, and it's uh, Nick Colas and Jessica Rabe is the name of the channel. Um, and I watch your stuff, of course. And we're gonna link to your YouTube channel in the show notes. Um, but the YouTube audience is younger than the audience that you guys typically speak to. I suppose when you're talking to hedge funds or institutional investors, it's certainly younger than the traditional wealth management uh, audience. And Jessica, you wanted to throw something in about uh, careers uh, for younger people here. So, t so take it away. Yeah, it's actually something that you've been saying, Josh, for years, that investing in tech stocks is a career hedge for millennials. And it's so true. And it's certainly one thing we learned over the last couple of years and continue to learn that disruptive technology like Gen AI is making having a sustainable career harder than ever. For people over the age of 50, it's not as big of a deal because they're they're through a lot of their career already. But for people like myself in their 20s, it's hugely important because we're going to be dealing with this for the, you know, the decades to come. And so we certainly believe investing in tech stocks is important as a career hedge. 
but also just a, a suitable long-term investment in general for anyone because any disruption that comes, those big tech stocks, they're going to figure out a way to monetize it. I think that's a really interesting point. Like, I don't think that anyone would go so far as to say, own the NASDAQ instead of the S&P 500. But certainly if you're younger and you could tolerate uh, bigger swings and more volatility that you might get in, in the NASDAQ, it's probably a worthwhile thing to tolerate because to your point, we don't know what the career landscape is going to look like in the United States in 10 years or all over the world, but it's a pretty safe bet. There are companies that are going to figure it out and make a lot of money and they're going to be NASDAQ companies like for, for the most part. Yeah. And tech tech has been consistently the one area of the, of the stock market that's been undervalued and that outperforms as a result. All right. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming by. This has been a lot of fun. We're going to tell people to, Check out datatrekresearch.com if you're interested in learning more about all of the amazing research that Nick and Jessica put out. You guys are five days a week. Is that that Uh, right? mm -hmm. Okay. No excuses. Sunday night through Thursday night. Sunday night through Thursday night. uh, Tons of research, tons of insights on all the stuff that we care so much about and uh, we focus on. Uh, And of course, make sure you check out Nick and Jessica's YouTube channel and how frequently you guys putting out videos there. Are we going once a week now that the New Year's kind of fun, full, full, full scope? Okay. All right. What, how, what's it like keeping that pace? You guys got it? You can handle it? Oh, yeah. Yeah? All right. All right. Well, I, lo- I love watching it's your really stuff. good. I love watching your stuff because I read it, but then having you explain it to me, uh, I think it sinks in better. Uh, or maybe there are some elements of it that are more conversational and less specific to the data. And so I get a lot out of what you guys are doing uh, on on the channel as well. All right, that's it from us. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, Check out datatrackresearch.com. Thanks to Nick and Jessica. We will talk to you soon. Back again, it's Tuesday night, 5 o'clock East Coast. You know what that means. It's time for an all-new round of What Are Your Thoughts? I'm your host, Downtown Josh Brown. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Michael Batnick. Michael, say hello to the folks. Hello, hello, folks. All right. Very exciting. And let's tell everyone where you are. You're on vacation. (laughs) You're on vacation. Look at you. Look at you. Look at me. No, but where are you? Literally. I don't even know where you went. We're both charting. I know it's one. I am. I know you're in Florida, in, but I, I don't know where. I'm in the Lauderdale area. Okay. Very nice. You know how you it got Ma- its name? Fort Lauderdale? Yeah. No. Same. I was thinking you might. <laughs> I thought you had something for me. <laughs> you're uh, with did, these you go, did you go to Matarano's yet for dinner? No. You know what that is? Where is that? No. If you, have, if you have a night and you can go, try to get in. It's, uh, it's in Fort Lauderdale. You know says, what I realized? It says celebrity chef Stephen Martirano, and he, when he's done cooking, he DJs. He has turntables in his kitchen, and yeah, the place so goes from a restaurant to a nightclub. It's, it's. I went there with Chanos, actually, back in the day. It's a lot of fun, dude. I'm telling you. I woke up this morning, and I said, I should be coming home today. Five nights is too much. Uh, we don't go away five nights. My it's wife too much. I, we, do, we do three or four. 
Yeah, four is the four with, is the sweet with spot. Kids, it's not a it's not a vacation in real life. Nah, uh, no. Nah, but you know what? You, you, you it's it's good. It's nice to get a break. And uh, here me? we are. It's great. Here we are doing YouTube. So look at that. Um, we have a sponsor tonight. I want to talk about uh, Public. Public has just launched options trading. You might have heard about that. You maybe have seen them on TV talking about it, or maybe you heard it from us. In an industry first, Public is sharing fifty percent of its options. Re- options revenue directly with you, the customer. So if you trade options on public, they will give you back some money. And that way you can see exactly what the options trade is is profiting them because they take half, you take half. So this is this is a, a first. I've never heard of a brokerage firm doing something like this. Have you? No, you know what? Options are the biggest money maker on Wall Street. I remember back in my day when I would buy options, like immediately I press buy and boom, I'm down 14%. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? You, just get, you just get railroaded. I guess it depends on how you're, it depends on how you're trading and what you're, what you're doing with options. Some oh, all junk, all some, same day expiration. Yep. No, yeah. I was doing weeklies. I don't know how to do I was doing weeklies. So I love it. Public is making, is shining some light on this. Like you said, 50% uh, of their options revenue they're sharing with you. I love it. Uh, we have to read this. This has been paid for by public investing. You must activate your options account by March 31st for revenue share options, not suitable for all investors and carry significant risk. <laughs> Full disclosures in podcast description, U S members only. All right. Uh, everyone's like on pins and needles waiting for this Nvidia earnings call. And with good reason, this is like the best performing stock of the last 10 years. It's the f- fourth or fifth largest market cap in, I think, the world. Um, this is a quarter where they're going to be doing 240% more revenue than the same time last year. And earnings are going from a billion to 10 billion. No big deal. So there's a lot of anticipation in the air. Dan Ives said somewhere you could you will be able to hear a pin drop on every trading floor on Wall Street as uh, NVIDIA uh, reports its numbers. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I feel like not much. Not much. Not much, right? Are you are you like personally or emotionally invested and excited in in the outcome of this? I don't own any semiconductor stocks right now, but I'm definitely. I mean, it's still the Super Bowl. I'm going to watch. It's, still the, it's so exciting. I, I'm I'm going to watch. I think. Uh, <laughs> listen, obviously, anything is possible, but I don't know. I just feel like it's going to get dumber. Like, wh- where? Did, oh, where it's where, definitely going to get dumber. Like, I feel like, uh, I don't know, 900, so 695 today. Why not 900? Why not something outrageously stupid? What? Oh, for the price? Yeah. Like, just outrageously stupid. All right. Here's a question for you. Is there any amount they could beat by that people are going to be like, wow? No. Do you know what the stock did the last two times they reported? The next day? I know. Two times ago, it was up 30%. Do you know what it did the last the, two times? The last time, the last time it opened up 10% and closed on the lows, right? Something like that. The last time they reported, it closed up 2%. The time before that, it closed down. But wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. But last time. Oh, really? Oh, so a couple of times ago. Fine. It was May of May of 23 was when they reported that explosive quarter and guided up for the rest of the year. The stock had a 25% move in that one day. And it was already a massive stock. So so that's that that was that was incredible. But what would they have to say in order for that to be repeated? So that's the thing. It's really hard to envision them them shocking with guidance, right? 
Yeah. I don't Hold know. on. John, John Chardon, put this bitch up on screen. So, I mean, this is, look at, first of all, look at 2023, just uh, in its totality. That is one of the most ridiculous things ever. And I say ridiculous, like in a good way, like in the hip hop sense, like it was bad, but good. And then what it did to start this year was so stupid that it had to retrace some of that before it even reported earnings. So, so for, for five of the last six weeks since the year started, the stock just went parabolic. And every I'm sorry, time- I'm sorry. Josh, today is not a retracement. It was down 4%. It's like a joke. No, on Friday, it's stock sold off. It's two, oh, it's let's two see. straight what is days it size? down at the numbers. Not far. Okay. I think yeah. it's okay. Um, the thing with the stock is that the expectations are really high because of the other Fang or the other Magnificent Seven names. And they're not unrelated. Those are their customers. Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Meta, are, and, and Alphabet are their four biggest customers, I think. So we, shared, you know, we shared that chart a few weeks. We shared a table a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. So these are all like these are all tied together. Oh, here we go. Nvidia's last four uh, four earnings reactions: February of 2023 up 14 percent, May of 23 up 24 <laughs> percent, August of 23 up 3 percent, and November of 23 down 2 percent. Okay, that's the official. Disregard everything I just said. Um, this is from Bespoke. Uh, the stock has reported an earnings triple play, which is beat earnings beat sales, and raise guidance on four Q4 earnings reports in a row and seven of the last eight dating back to 2016. Yeah, this is Q4 shit. This is like a hot quarter for them normally. I, I think historically it's been because video games, but whatever, like this is a hot, this is a hot quarter for them. Well, how about uh, this? I feel like the outcome is binary. There's no, not no way. I'd be very surprised. I'd be much more surprised if it closes up or down only 2% tomorrow. All right, so I'll take the other side of that. I think there is so much money betting. For, uh, I think the implied volatility here is 11%. Is that right? I think that sounds about right. What is it? So what these are, are the most active. These, these are, are the most active and the top, the top seven options contracts for the most active are all calls, obviously. Dude, that's yeah. hilarious. 1,300 and they expire. <laughs> they expire this week. The 1,300 Sure, calls. why not? Why YOLO. not? Uh, I hate that phrase, yo. I don't really say that. Um, Let me ask you this. I was thinking about this. People were saying that like, holy wait, wait, cow. Up, wait, can we put up this put up this graphic from quarter? This shows the expectations. Look at this. <laughs> Revenue, 20 billion versus 6 billion. Uh, go. Cash flow, 12.6 yeah. versus negative. E EBIT, 13.4 versus 2.2. Earnings per share, $4.64 versus 88 cents. Yeah, nice little run. Nice little Jesus. run. So let me ask you this, Josh. Do you think that if, not if, NVIDIA is the, is the leader for now in AI, undisputable, who knows where it's going to be five years, but for today, it's the leader in AI. AI is, going, is undergoing a super cycle. Do you think it's completely outlandish for it to be worth more than Google today? Yes. And I own both I stocks. And I would not short NVIDIA by, by Alphabet as like my way to express that view. I think NVIDIA is way overdone. I would not argue Alphabet's undervalued either. So I think NVIDIA is just way overdone. And that's why two weeks ago I took some off the table. And that's why I've been like very vocally saying, I think we're putting in 
a NASDAQ top for probably the first half. I really feel that. So, so if AI grows into what is being priced into the stock, and if it does everything that people are expecting and hoping, do you think it would be ridiculous for NVIDIA to be larger than Google in three or five years? Uh, not necessarily, except that, and Rich Bernstein kind of took us a little bit to school on this last week, it's still going to be a cyclical company. We might, we might not be late in the cycle, so it might not matter right now, but in the end, it's a company selling semiconductors and it's going to be cyclical. And for that reason, it will lose uh, multiple. People just will not pay 40 times earnings for a cyclical forever. And they can't keep up the growth rate that, that they, that they, they can't keep up this growth rate from between now and five years from now. So, so they the question still is like growing in five years, but just not at the rate they are. Of course not. And Jensen Wang is not promotional. Like he's promotional about the products. He does these incredible demos and he's really excited about AI and he makes no secret of how bullish he is, but he's not like trying to pump the stock price higher. And when Sam Altman was doing tweets about $7 trillion uh, build out uh, raises, he was like, look, that's just because of what it costs now uh, for compute, but the chips will get more efficient and they'll be cheaper. Like he's saying that. So, so I don't view him as like this Pied Piper figure who's like walking us all off the cliff. I don't think that's what's going on. He's really, really excited about the products they're building. Uh, it just doesn't. It it just doesn't necessarily translate into a stock price that only goes in one direction forever. And that's the, the stock hard part is up because the stock is up two hundred twenty five percent or so over the yeah. last year. Revenues Deser- up two hundred forty percent. Earnings are up four hundred. Earnings are up four hundred thirty percent. So yeah, deserved. However, I I do think that we are at the point of the game. We're at the period of the game where hype has taken over. And these buyers and sellers, they're not discounting fibers. They're discounting like, who's going to buy it for me at a higher price tomorrow? Ba- Baird raised their target price on this thing today. That yeah. Takes, uh, that's balls. That's the analyst like comments, quote, per our Asia field trip, demand for NVIDIA's AI solutions remains unabated with momentum from enterprise customers now rapidly building. Um, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. My, this is my, my last hypothetical question. All right. Who would have more egg on their face? Come Friday morning, people that were short the stock or vocal bears, and this thing goes up twenty percent, or the bulls who who overstay their welcome, and this thing drops twenty five percent of the day. Like who would, in hindsight, who would look more foolish? Uh, the bears, I think, for staying I, I, negative. Yeah, like what? In a world where there are thirty thousand stocks all over the globe that you could so be many pieces against, of shit, so many pieces of shit. Why, why would you, it's not that the price can't drop. I'm not a, like a permable, but like, why would you pick a fight with the toughest guy in the prison yard? Just you know why? That you that's can? a great, that's a great analogy. Cause it's ego. That's it. You want to be the person that, that made money shorting. I mean, yeah, I just, I, like, I, I never understood that mentality. Like, wow, that's the greatest company ever. I think it's overpriced. <laughs> that's your, that's what you want to do. I, I, I mean, I'm not a short seller, so I, I, don't, I don't know if that's smart or stupid. From the outside looking in, that would probably not be the type of short seller that I would want to be. I would be looking for garbage. And I don't think like even the bears are saying, although actually there are some people out there saying that NVIDIA is round tripping and 
they are funding companies that then turn around and buy Nvidia equipment. That's like uh that's like a big conspiracy theory on Twitter. Do you mean I'm double not, dipping? Or what do you mean round tripping? No, 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 no. Uh, vendor financing. This is one of the thi- this is one of the things that got GE capital in trouble where a company starts paying for its own product by lending their customers money. Well, they are investing in some of their customers. Correct. And so that is a thing that does raise alarms with short sellers who have a long memory and yep. there there is a history of companies cooking their books via setting up setting up a company and then selling a product. That was the short that was the short uh, premise on Valiant, and it turned out to be right. They were setting up dummy pharmacies and stuffing the channel with product and reporting that as revenue. So I, they don't. It's this is frowned upon in in most uh, in most. I I don't think that the short the people that are shorting Nvidia. I don't think they believe that story. I think they just believe it's overhyped, and it is it is overhyped. But but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get rewarded. With a with a with a thirty percent sell off, you know what I mean. So it's 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 tough. Uh, did you see the article Dan McCrum did at uh, FT? Let me quote this. Mm-hmm. It's called. This is very provocative. Nvidia is nuts. When's the crash? This is like a this is like a segment that they do recurring. Yep. Before the AI fever breaks, few will bet against Nvidia's market value rising further as stock market investors swoon at thoughts of the bot overlord future. Terrible lead. Terrible first sentence. Uh, he's a better writer than that. That's lazy. Bots have nothing to do with this. Uh, this week, NVIDIA's market cap passed $1.8 trillion, leapfrogging Alphabet, whose net income was greater than NVIDIA's 2023 revenues. That's rearview mirror. That stuff doesn't matter. Wall Street focuses on next year. Uh, I don't know. It's a, whole bunch of, it's a whole bunch of stuff about how expensive the stock was. Yeah, agree. Well, they quote an analyst who's like, listen, even in the most optimistic scenario, this thing is, the margins have been all over the place. It's not going to sustain 55% margins. And the analyst comes to a much lower share price, which so, yeah, might Toby be right. Clothier has pulled a dusty discounted cash flow model from a drawer and plugged in NVIDIA's numbers. To get a 740 share price requires the company maintain a monopolist-like operating profit margin of 55% for the next decade, yeah, while also growing happen. sales tenfold. From sixty billion to six hundred billion. The thing is, you could have written this article three years ago, and had no idea. Nvidia was expensive two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. You could have written this article and had no idea that twenty twenty three was going to be the start of this AI revolution. So you and I right now might be talking a lot of late night dorm room bullshit and not even understanding like what twenty twenty four is going to be like. So yeah. I. I, I, I allow for that possi- – I don't think it's a strong possibility that we're underestimating this company at this point, but I allow, I allow for it. It is possible. So. Okay, let's move on. Um, Mark Dow tweeted, the market's gone from pricing in 165 basis – Prediction, bro. Prediction. What happens oh, tomorrow okay. night? Do they beat and what is this – or, or do, they, do they beat? Are they on target or do they, do they miss – and what does the stock do in those scenarios? I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Uh, I don't know. Up 15%. I just think when whenever you think things can't get dumber, yes, they can. Stock price up 15% after the earnings? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say they beat the stock price at first, knee jerk, way higher. And then by the next morning, it's like flattish. And- 
Then we have anal- then we have analysts like basically forced to can they raise targets again? And that that's that's I think I I don't think anyone's gonna get killed in the stock, but that's that would be my best guess. I think they'll crush okay. earnings, yeah, I like but that. the stock might be the stock might just might not there might not be enough people to come in and buy it. So it does seem unlikely. Uh, my fifteen percent protection notwithstanding. Um, all right. Mark Dow tweeted, the market's gone from pricing at 165 basis points of cuts to 80 basis points of cuts, and equities have been dancing around all-time highs, feeling pretty vindicating. Hope this is a teachable moment for those who need to explain every market move in terms of the Fed. Mark's been on this beat for a long time, and I think his point is that, not that the Fed is not important, because of course they are supremely important, but people spend so much time focusing on their every move, and those people that do that tend to be on one side of the trade. And historically, at least in the recent history, it's not been the right side. Well, there are people whose whole careers is talking shit about everything the Fed says and does. There are people who get speaking gigs and write books because every single day they're on the Bloomberg terminal trashing the Fed to reporters. And then when they run out of reporters to give quotes to, they're on Twitter rehashing. But it's like that's a it's a cottage industry. And there's a segment of the population that's got a built-in distrust of anything federal government or centralized or Big any any kind of banking authority or any kind of regulator. So they eat that shit up. Um, mm-hmm. So it's I don't think that there's any honest attempt to get the market right on the part of the people that we're we're talking about. I think I think the gig is exactly what you see them doing, and the the stock market is almost a sideshow to the main event, which is here's why the Fed is about to f- this up and and I know better than than uh, central bank, so that's that. I mean, from what I've seen, it's almost irrelevant what 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 the outcome is for investors because they're not investors. You know, that's a good point. I think the the market is secondary to the focus on the Fed. Like, of course, yeah. there's a very hard slant towards you know things are not going to end well and they're they're not doing this right, but they're giving the audience exactly what they want, which yeah, is they're doing they're just doing a, stick. what. Just a what? continued distrust of central bankers. Listen, the stock the stock market what the stock market went up uh what what up last year? 30%? Not one Clap. not one of these not one of these people who in the first half of the year were screeching about whatever the Fed was missing with the banks, blah, blah, blah. Not one of them was like, oh wow, soft landing, cool. It's always you'll see. So it doesn't really matter. If and if the market fell, they'd say, I told you so. So it really it's not an investing conversation. They're the two old guys in the balcony on the Muppet show. And yeah. you know what I mean? Nobody knows what they're yeah. doing. Only me and my, and my five uh, asshole friends who write newsletters. Only we know what's going on. The rest of you are sheep and your worst days are ahead. And that it almost is irrelevant what the stock market does. Uh, it's, it's very tedious. It's, I've been watching this for 15 years. Uh, none of these people make any money. All right, I'm going to get uh, into it. I'm thinking about pivoting, pivoting to the. Uh, you want to get into the business? Yeah, seems lucrative. Uh, you'll run out of material in a week uh, <laughs> because everything that could be said has already been said. Um, I think earnings took the focus off of how many cuts. Earnings were good enough that people stopped feeling like a March cut was a necessity, and of course, the the threat of inflation reheating is another reason why nobody's like quick cut rates like no it doesn't feel as though anyone thinks that that should happen right now that's a big change from where we all were uh in december consensus was in december in december it was like well they better start cutting look how fast inflation is falling nobody's really saying that 
I, I talked about this with uh, Nick and uh, Jessica yesterday here on, on YouTube. That's really the main, so I asked, like, what have we learned this year? Nick said the big takeaway is large caps were never really dependent on uh, rate cuts. Maybe you could say Russell 2000 stocks were, but that oh, was just, that was not baked into the S&P. We all thought it was. It turns out it wasn't because we're, we're having these rate cuts removed one by one from the calendar this year by a combination of strong earnings and, uh, and uh, a, a, a lack of inflation falling further. And these stocks are still levitating. So I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. Um, Jess Menton at Bloomberg wrote some stuff about Goldman's uh, up, up, uh, raised target on the S&P 500. So this was David Costin uh, put this out on Friday afternoon. Monday, the market was closed. So we're talking about it today. David Costin now sees the S&P 500 rising to 5,200 by the end of this year, raising his forecast by 2% from 5,100. The wow. new target implies a 3.9% jump from Friday's close, which is wow. nothing special. Really, really going out on a limb there. He took I mean, why even one, more pink, Honestly, one more pink out on the limb. <laughs> Dude, you up, you up your price target by 2%. How about just don't do that? Goldman's $5,200 price target for the S&P is now among the highest on Wall Street, joining the ranks of Tom Lee and John Stoltzfus at Oppenheimer, who both hold a similar UN outlook. Um... They raised their earnings. That's why, Mike. Goldman said they went from 241 to 256 in 2025. <laughs> so t- they raised their 2025 uh, is, earnings outlook. That is their final answer. They will not revise it again. Uh, Deutsche Bank went street high. I think this is this guy, Binky. I don't, I don't know him. I've never met him. I think that's a nickname. Um, uh, not Deutsche. Uh, is UBS. So UBS went to 5,400, but Deutsche Bank also uh, also raised their target. So it's happening. Not really. Like, no, it's not. After yeah, they're, 30%, all, they're all lifting. After, yeah, 2% higher than where the market is, if the right. or 3% or 4%. Has there ever been a scenario where the market's up 30% and then analysts are expecting a 3% gain for the next year? Yeah, they were all – last year, they were all way under. All their targets were too low last year. No, but the previous year wasn't a great year. 2022 sucked. Right. That's why. That's how that happens. What do you mean? What I forget what you're asking. Has there yeah, ever been a year where what? Who cares? Like right. it's just it's, – it's unusual for the market to do so well and analysts still to be so – Pessimistic on the whole. Oh, that I that I agree with. They're still they're still trailing, but they're going to keep raising. They're going to keep lifting their targets until they're not trailing anymore. Oh, every two weeks. And that'll be yeah. That'll be that'll be the end. Um, this is interesting from Axios. We've talked about the wealth effect from the stock market and whether or not that's partially behind the inflation. So I I'm firmly in the camp that it is. I think you know that by now. I think uh, high stock markets lead to increased consumer activity at the high end, which ends up raising the prices for just about everything. And I will but, never so, but, back, I'll never back how, off but, that view. But but how do you explain 2013 through 2019? Ripping stock market and no inflation. Uh, I don't know if that, that was such a ripping stock market. I think it, it was 14% it, a year. Yeah, but after 10 years of no progress. So it, you know what I mean? Like this is different. This is different. This is new high, new high, new high, new high. This is not that. 
So, so all-time highs in the stock market are inflationary because people feel better and spend more. It's not more. just all-time highs. It's all-time assets. It's all-time. It's all-time retirement assets. It's all-time stock market assets. It's it's not just new highs. It's the market caps of these stocks and how the trillions of dollars that people have. They're just not going to stop spending. I think this is circular logic. People don't spend their net worth. They don't see that their four hundred one k is higher than they spend more. The market is high because they're doing well because the economy is doing well. And they're employed. Yeah, it's tautological, but still. Um, here's Axios. For months, wholesale price jumps have been outright benign, a sign that milder price increases were in the pipeline for consumers. But that changed in January as producer prices came in hot. One surprising reason, the gangbusters stock market. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. Okay. Ready? It's I'm worth ready, noting that inflation data can be pushed up or down by categories that whipsaw for reasons that signal little about inflation's path. There's a portfolio management component within the calculations. I think it's in PPI, right? Where they're literally looking at um, like investment management fees, okay? Yeah. That category alone rose 5% in January, the biggest monthly jump since 2021. It's one key reason why the PPI looked so hot. Mm. And that's basically because the stock market has surged and investment managers are charging more money. It's the same percentage, but on a higher dollar amount. So that shows up in the inflation reading. And that's got to so, be such a tiny slice of the pie. Come no, on. they say it was the piece that made the difference, dude. Yeah. That com- here, all, right. all right, here. That com- that component alone could bump up the core PCE index, which excludes food and energy by almost 0.1%, according to Inflation Insight. So PPI rose 0.3% in January, the largest increase since last fall. The jump can be traced to a big increase in prices on the services side of the economy, portfolio management and hospital outpatient care. Those were the two things that <laughs> moved the needle. So, yes, there's, there's a little bit hotter inflation. And, yes, the stock market is sort of indirectly causing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like the market looks past that. Like, I don't think the market is worried about inflation because asset managers yeah, are making so, more money. So far. Yeah. Let's just not let it get out of control. That's all. That's all. <laughs> Deal. Um, okay. Next, we're going to uh, – Oh. We are, we really are. This is a tire trove. I'm sorry, but we really, really are truly due for a pullback. It's been like a long time. Cue, cue the next 10% uh, rep. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm in this camp. Chart on. This is from Sentiment Trader. The number of consecutive days since a 2% pullback, and this is stale at this point. I think it's like a week or two old. Uh, we're now in the top 25 streaks of all time. And when I say we're due for a pullback, I'm not saying anything like other than maybe something benign, but it's just not normal. Like really and truly, it's not normal for stocks to be this this calm. Uh, next chart, please, John. This is just a closer zoom in on the S and P five hundred. This goes back to the end of last year. Just very, very serene, very serene. Didn't we have it. the? Didn't we have the biggest uh, the biggest one day sell off of the year so far last Tuesday? Last Tuesday, it was a one percent day. I think it was worse. When that PPI number came out that we were just referencing, right? Yeah, but I don't think it was that. I can't remember. What I mean, that's not that. Day. That's not like a pullback. That's just a bad day. But no, literally, know. literally, we haven't closed more than two percent off the highs. 
Like VIX is VIX is creeping up though. It's not twelve anymore. Ah, please, it's it's I'm fourteen. All right, but it's not twelve. It's fourteen. All right, all right. So That's if now. if if Nvidia gives investors an opportunity to sell, um, they will do so. Okay. Do you know what uh, Wawa is? Do you have any experience with this? Um, big fan. I I suspect you hate it because you're no, I love a it. snob. No, I love it. You love it? Yeah, I'm the snob. I never would have guessed that. Well, I never remember, remember, I lived in Maryland for a couple Maryland, of years, right. yeah. and uh, this was like what you did. I mean, we had 7-Eleven, but you weren't eating at 7-Eleven, and this place was open till 2 a.m. So after a night of drinking, you needed a sandwich, and this is where you went. And there were, there were no other options, oh, and it worked great. It's the best. Um, it's, it's really good, right? We don't have these it's on Long Island. Yeah. No, I don't know why. So I, my only experience, my only real experience with Wawa, I went to one in Maryland, is is when I come back from Atlantic City. On the way home, I get a get a couple of sandwiches. Yep. I, so all right, I'm a fa- I'm a fan. Some are better than others. I don't love the rest stop ones because they tend to be very high trafficked, and the sandwich artists are just not on their game. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in general, I I am all for what I'm about to tell you. They are. Now in the process of expanding into all 50 states. And what I love about the story is it is 100% employee owned, to my knowledge. So it's the founding family has more than half. And I think almost all of the rest of the stock is employees. And 40%. employees over the, oh, yeah, I love this story. It's a top, so 10, it's a, top 10 plan in the United States. Yeah. All right. So let me set this up. I think this is at Bloomberg. And it's a story about private wealth. Um, but I love that this is just still possible. It's a thousand locations, eighteen and a half billion in annual sales. They're going to open two hundred eighty stores in the next ten years. They say they're moving into Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky. The most aggressive growth, according to the CEO, in the chain's history. So it's a big mid-Atlantic thing. Anybody you know that's from like Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware. They know all about Wawa, and now the rest of the country is going to get one. And I love that. Um, but this is the, the key thing. They introduced an employee stock ownership plan in 1992, and it has grown wow. to become one of the 10 largest in the United States. Employees own 38% of Wawa. Uh, what else was I going to tell you? Um, so they open 100 stores a year. And I guess – you can't really do that if you don't have employees that know what the store is supposed to look like. So you're like sending managers into these new territories. They have to find a location and they have to like hire staff and they have to report back to headquarters, like what supplies they need. You really have to have employees who get what you are and what it's supposed to look like in order to expand and not lose what makes it special. Cause it's not franchisees. It's, like Starbucks is company owned stores. And I think that's like so critical. And that's probably why they've maintained the quality for so long. So it's a really 18, cool, it's a really cool story. 18 billion in sales is more than News Corp uh, and Best Buy. Is that right? Yeah. And okay. Zoom, Zoom video as well. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. It's a lot. It's a lot of sandwiches. Anyway, I love, I love that that's possible. And uh, I think you and I should always be looking at companies like that where you know they're they're making the opportunity available to employees to buy in and be, and be shareholders and expanding with 
like a healthy percentage of the company owned by the founders and the employees. Like, I really think that that's the model. And uh, I, I love that. I love that this is happening for them. Uh, so it's a great store. Okay. Uh, you're up, you're up last. I love it as well. Um, all right. This is timely. Last week, the mystery chart, I think it was it. Was it Capital One versus Discover or was it American Express versus Discover? We were doing like American Express versus Discover and we were saying, yeah, mystery chart. We were saying like one of these charts is lying. Turns yeah. out neither neither of them were. So the most, so, okay, so so Capital One in an all stock deal is buying Discover Financial Services. Capital One is a bank and a credit card issuer. Discover mm-hmm. is like the network. Uh, they don't have, the network issuers like Visa and MasterCard, they don't have any physical locations. The the most predictable thing imaginable uh, after the statement came from Senator Elizabeth Warren, the merger of Capital One and Discover threatens our financial stability. Oh, go wow. away. Reduces competition and would increase fees and credit costs for American families. This Wall Street deal is dangerous and will harm working people. Regulators must block it immediately. Yeah, that's okay. not, the first part of that statement is just not not even close to accurate. Do you even think she? Do you think she's just on autopilot at this point, or do you think she yes. actually like sat down and thought about it without knowing anything about about her or politics really at all? I would. I had this has to be an autopilot. I mean, of course, you know it's every the, time. You know what the problem is? Like all of the sting. Uh, uh, like she she was very powerful ten years ago, and she had everyone's attention, and she really was putting it seemed a lot of thought and energy into doing things in the financial sector that would benefit everyone. Here's the problem with what she's doing with this. Obvious to ev- pretty much everybody on the planet. Discover is an also ran. It's totally irrelevant. It's not big enough to keep up with the rate of investment that's going to be necessary for the future of financial services. It just, it's not. And it's always been a misfit. It was part of Sears. I think it was part of Morgan Stanley at one point or Dean Witter. It's just, it's never made any sense or, or meant anything to anyone as a standalone brand. Now, Capital One, which issues most of its cards through MasterCard and Visa, uh, now they actually will have a homegrown card that they could arguably have lower costs <laughs> and push more people into. Yeah, and it's, it might it's actually precisely benefit opposite. the She's consumer. Backwards. It's She's backwards. backwards. Yeah. And you need... And, I never understood. They were trying to block the merger with um, T-Mobile. Who did they buy? Sprint. Uh, Sprint. Right. It made a real third option. Before that, it was AT&T or Verizon or go f*** yourself. Like, and then all of a sudden, T-Mobile got scale because of the Sprint deal, and they could effectively compete. And that's a win for consumers. So I don't understand. And this is not a Wall Street deal. None of these companies are on Wall Street. At not all. that, not that like she ever had me, but she lost me when she was attacking grocery stores for price gouging without considering that, I don't know, grocery stores have margins that are, that nobody on earth would want. Do you think she has a constituency where people are like, yeah, like, I don't think so. I think she did <sighs> during Occupy Wall Street, like in that three or five, three to five year stretch when everyone hated Goldman Sachs. That's so long ago. I don't like I don't know who the audience is for these types of like automatically block it. I don't I don't know who it is. So anyway, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's the biggest deal since Chevron bought Hess. And they're going to be able to perhaps compete more effectively with Visa and MasterCard. So it's a big deal. 
Uh, our friend Dan Dolev, friend of the show at Mizuho, who covers fintech, put out a note uh, as soon as the as soon as the media started picking up reports that this was underway. And uh, I'll share what Dan thinks. He was saying the merger could potentially pose some risks to Visa and MasterCard. You see, Elizabeth Warren, you might like that. Um, Capital One is the third largest issuer of Visa and MasterCard credit cards in the U.S. It accounts for 10% of U.S. credit volumes. Capital One could seek to steer some card volumes to Discover's rails to potentially save on network fees. Capital One may also choose to broaden the use of Discover's closed-loop debit network, where 98% of transactions earn unregulated debit interchange that averages 1.41% versus the 21 cents it currently earns on regulated debit. I don't fully understand all of that, but it sounds like there could potentially be actually be cost savings, and this actually might be good for a certain segment of uh, consumers. Um, he also says that Capital One may leverage Discover's uh, – uh, all right, it doesn't matter. I think um, – I think it's probably high time that somebody figured out what to do with this Discover thing because as a standalone business, it was never going to get materially larger. Visa and MasterCard, if you look at the growth of those companies over the last 10 years, they have uh, lapped Discover five and six times. So that's that's what this looks like to me. And uh, let's hope it's a, a net positive for the whole ecosystem. And that's all I have to say about that. You want to do some uh, want to do some make the case? Make it. What do you All got? Right. All right. Did you see waste management uh, recently? Have you looked at this chart? I think Not the largest shareholder is Bill Gates, actually. Huh. Um, this is – all right. This stock just went parabolic. This looks like they just uh, like invented a better Ozempic and they used AI to do it. Look at, look at this thing. Uh, this, this is like one of the largest 25 companies in the XLI. The industrials. The industrials as a group, with a few exceptions, a few rails, are absolutely on fire. Uber is, one, I think, the second or third largest uh, market cap in the industrials now, uh, believe it or not. So I was looking at the other names. I was looking at some charts. And all I saw were massive breakouts. Like all of the um, uh, Lockheed, Raytheon, the, all of those stocks are just vertical this waste management thing just went vertical out of nowhere. I probably earnings. I didn't bother to look. Uh, if you look at, uh, if you look at uh, even the worst stocks in the group like Boeing and FedEx, even those seem like they're bottoming. Uh, and then I came across this one, John Charnon. Do you know what this company is, Sintas Corp? I do not. Okay. Well, it's up sixty five thousand percent since uh, over the last forty years making it one of the biggest winners in the history of the stock market. Cintas is the company that makes all of the uniforms. Every janitor, nurse, sanitation worker, police officer, warehouse person, like they all have this little tag that says Cintas. That, so this is like basically a giant call option with no expiration on the growth of the United States economy. We need to and break up that company. I don't like I that. Mean, I don't like it. I don't like it. Big big uniform is is uh definitely monopoly. They're taking over. Um look at this chart. Next chart. Dude, that chart looks like the holy grail of investing. 
right? If you just find Cintas, you're good forever. All right, yeah. this, is, this is the last five years, and I'm showing you the 50-day and 200-day. Ignore the 50-day. This, is, this real- is weekly, by the way. Right, but I'm set, uh, all right, 50 period, yeah. 200 period. Same thing. Yeah. Do, not, do not bother with the 50 period, uh, 50 week. Uh, just look at, look at how flawless this uptrend is. And yeah, it, it goes good. through periods where it consolidates. It's not straight up like a rocket ship. Look how well it weathered 2022. And we should have been watching this because if you had watched this chart in 2022 and not That's Meta, right? yeah, dude, and yeah. not Meta, you would have said the economy's fine. Look at the leading uniform maker. Yeah, not just the United States, but maybe in North America, maybe the world. Yeah. I don't know. I love it. Uh, last chart. So this is Cintas share price uh, versus its trailing twelve month earnings. What do you want? What do you want? This is it. This is why you invest. This is why because there are companies like this that there's no AI. They just, there are companies like this that just, they earn a profit. They earn a bigger profit next year and but a bigger dude, profit the next year. When it's they incredible. integrate, when they integrate AI into oh, their, into their cloth material. Oh my God. hundred percent. When they weave AI mm. into the mm. polyester uh, cleaning lady costume, whatever, yeah. it's yeah. going to be unstoppable. But yeah. between now and then it's still a pretty dope, uh, investing situation. So uh, am I making the case? Well, if waste management is any sort of guide, there's no reason why this stock couldn't uh, continue to move higher. So I don't think it's over. All right. You're up. You got a mystery chart. I like it. Good pitch. Okay. Um, This is a company that uh, maybe this is too good of a clue. It's like it's a store where the smell, you just walk in and you're like, oh, I know where I am. Wait. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a retailer. It's a retailer with a strong okay. smell. It's okay, a retailer with it. a strong smell. It's a strong smell, like a, but a pleasant smell. Nah, not to me. Not to you. Ooh. Okay. I'm going to say Sephora. Close. Same. Yeah. Same idea. Uh, I'll give you one more clue. Works. This. I'll give one more clue. This this bed, this company bath, appara- bed bath and <laughs> relax. <works. laughs> this company apparently reinvented the shit out of themselves because I went to the website today, and this does not look like the company that I remember back in the day. Okay, what is it? I lose. It is, it is Abercrombie and Fitch. Wait, what does it smell like? Teenagers? What are you just talking about? Just like an, just an overwhelming uh, monsoon of cologne. You smell it like three stores away. Okay. Yeah, Abercrombie is back in a big way. I see the I see the credit card charges, my wife and daughter, so I know that. So they're like pivoting to like athleisure kind of? Yeah. Uh yeah, and I also think like they're they're not specifically just selling things to people in their twenties. Okay. I think they're they're I think they're doing like Lulu and Alo. Like they're they're after that market. But you know what my shit is right now? And I'm gonna be draped in head to toe uh Viori. Viori is the most comfortable shit on earth. Go to uh Go to Miracle Mile with Robin. Listen, have her pick I you actually, out. Like a I'm sweatsuit. wearing a pair right now, but but I'm a bird. You know, I'm a bird dog guy, so be careful. No, I f- I feel you on that, but I'm saying like when you want to like take it up like one notch, Viore is what's up. <laughs> it's just so. You know what I was thinking? The today? material. It's just. It's just like it's. It's just so like uh, luxurious. I luxuriate in my Viore uh, sweatsuits. As I was thinking about, so Ben and I were talking about Abercrombie today. 
So I went to the de- one of the delis around here just to grab a bottle of, uh, I needed to hydrate because I'm under the weather. I needed to hydrate. And I grabbed a vitamin water. And I was thinking, hey, what happened to these things? They used to be the hottest drink in the world. And I don't know the last time I saw one. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, uh, Funny how that happens. Water? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, Mike Rapoli. And he does He sold now- it, right? He sold it he sell- to Coca- Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, like 50 Cent was like on the cap table- he got Everyone fifty cent. He him. got fifty cent to do like marketing, and he gave him stock, and then he, um, and then he sold it to Co. I, I saw Rapoli in uh, Saratoga with Cheryl. He's friends with Cheryl. They, I think they own a horse together, and his new thing is body armor, which Kobe was involved with, and I don't think they sold body armor yet. But it's like another sports drink. It's like, it's like another athletic kind of sports drink. Um, I don't, I don't think I've ever had a, a body armor. Did he? He might have meshed that with uh, with Brady's thing. Am I, am I right? Twelve. Oh, it's possible. You know, dude, we're going to be talking about the business of sports Paul, uh, on is Monday, a beast, dude. That's Josh and I, little, little little teaser on Monday. Josh and I are talking sports with uh, I mean, one of my under, favorite. Way, you're time. way underselling what we're doing, but I love it. I love well, yeah, it. I'm yeah, keeping yeah. it modest. No, I, I like it. All right, hey everybody. Did you know tomorrow <laughs> is Wednesday, which means all new Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. And Dude, then of course ben, ben carried me today. I was I was I was yeah, I, know, I, I know the feeling. Carried me. Uh we hope we hope Michael feels better, of course, and uh we know you'll bounce back. Uh we're gonna see you on Thursday. Are you back in New York? We're gonna see you Thursday? Yeah, yeah, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. All right, re- rest up. Thursday's a big show. Uh all new uh compound and friends at the end of this week. Thanks so much for watching and listening, guys. Thanks for the ratings and reviews, they go a long way. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash TheCompoundRWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, Check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.